So we're, we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and today we're up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul again comes back to this issue of conflict. And there's always things, isn't there, that uh, cause us to be in conflict with one another, things that we disagree over, things important things, like do you store your Vegemite in the fridge or in the cupboard? That's a big one. We used to be, we used to be fridge people. We found out if you store it in the cupboard, it's much softer when you want to put it on your toast in the morning. That's a blessing. Some of you are going, well, duh. Are you a sunrise or a good morning Australia person? I mean, that can split a church right down the middle. Do you scrunch your toilet paper or do you fold it? You know, be organised, fold. Don't be messy. And you think, well, they're stupid examples, Mark. And it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this and thinking about this passage, how many times have we been in conflicts in church and uh, disunity with one another when, when we really sit down and look at it in the light of the cross, that thing which was so important is as silly as do you scrunch or fold toilet paper? Like really when you put these little conflicts we have against the cross, some of them seem very small, don't they? And this passage we're going to look at this morning is a conflict in the, the church in Corinth where they appear to be split down the middle about it. There is serious division in the church over it. And Paul kind of writes to them to say, you have completely missed the point. You are asking completely the wrong question. So if you've got your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't, you'll have them on the screen. But we're really encouraging people at the moment to bring your Bibles to church. Bring your Bible that you're going to read on Monday. Bring it on Sunday because we want you to open it again and again. The same Bible, see where you mark it. I've got a new Bible because, well, Angus kind of destroyed my old one. And um, one of the things I miss about having that old Bible is when I open up to a passage of Scripture, none of the passages are marked anymore. Verses that have meant something to me in the past. And I, was just, and I just really encourage you. I know some people really don't like to mark the Bible because it's like a holy thing. The book itself is not holy. It's the words in it that are holy. I'd encourage you, mark it up. Get to know it. Get to know your Bible. Get the feel of it in your hand or your phone if you use an app, one or the other. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and see what this massive conflict was all about. Paul writes, now, about food sacrificed to idols. See, I told you the burning question you're all asking. Tell us about food sacrificed to idols because that's what's going on for us right now, isn't it? No. Let's just stop there real quick and explain what's going on. In Corinth, basically, every tradesperson, everyone who was in business, worshipped the god of that trade. Uh, if you were the local uh, liquor, uh, liquor seller, you would be worshipping the Bacchus, the god of alcohol. If you were the, uh, selling meat, you would worship the god of meat. And the problem was that nothing was slaughtered in a place like Corinth without being slaughtered in the name of the local god. So every time you went to have a good T-bone steak... That T-bone steak had been slaughtered to a god. And probably in the same way that halal meat is done today, when it's at its neck slit, it would be said something like, to the god. And the idea was, for the people of that era, was that uh, in meat, because meat had blood in it, there were demons in the meat. And by sacrificing to the local god, you replaced the demon with the local god, and thereby... Eating the meat, you had the local God come into you. That was the idea. And so the people in the church who had come out of that society were like, we don't want to be eating meat that's had been sacrificed to idols. We don't want to be eating meat that's had a God put in them. 
because we don't believe they are gods. We believe they're demons and we don't want to be eating meat that's had demons put in them. And so some people were saying, don't be ridiculous. The meat is, the, 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 the little gods aren't real anyway. So just eat the meat, just eat it. And other people are like, but no, I want to do that. And so the people who were eating the meat were looking at the people who wouldn't eat the meat and saying, stop being so immature and stupid. And the people who wouldn't eat the meat were saying, stop being so flippant about faith. And there was this conflict. And basically, each were looking down on each other. So they've written to Paul and said, well, what do we do, Paul? Help us out. He says, well, I'll tell you. We know that we all have knowledge and knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Well, that's not an answer to the question. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, all things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. So all the people who said, eat the meat, are saying, told you so. Just eat the meat. Go and have a good T-bone. You'll feel better after you do. Go and eat the bacon. Well, if they were Jews, maybe not. But just eat the meat, man. Go and have the lamb shanks. Eat whatever you want. It's all good. However, Paul says, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now. And really, that word even there can be translated two ways. Used to idolatry or used by idolatry. They have been so immersed in idolatry. They can't help but see the butcher shop and see an idol. It's become so much a part of their world, they can't separate the two. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us closer to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat it, and we're no better off if we do. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. You may be right, but you are ruining the other person. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall... I'll never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Basically what Paul is saying is this. You're right. The meat is nothing. Don't worry about it. But consider your brother. So many of us crave to have the knowledge. and We think we have it. But if we flaunt that knowledge in a way that crushes our brother, we've actually completely missed the point. Paul is saying knowledge and love must go together. They must go together. And so he says in verses 4 to 6, it's true, there is only one God, and so it's all good. He made the meat, he made the cows, he made everything, eat the meat. As he says in 1 Timothy, 
1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, receive everything from God's hand with thanksgiving. Enjoy it. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. God has blessed you. Enjoy them. If you can afford the meat, eat the meat. Don't worry about it. And so many of us uh, often wonder, well, what could this possibly have to do with me today? Well, I think we're going to very literally be facing the question of meat sacrifice to idols in our societies. We have halal meat now. Is it okay? Is it not okay? Because when that beast was slaughtered, it was slaughtered with God, Allah is great. I think this passage says to us, the meat's the meat. Stop stressing over it. Because God has redeemed us. And you might think, well, that's okay, so that's some halal meat, but all through history, all through the church, there have been times when we've picked out issues that have become things about should Christians do it and not do it. And there are clearly things that obviously we should not do. We should not murder. We should not steal. I think it's clear in Scripture we shouldn't have anything to do with things like uh, tarot reading and that sort of kind of thing. Just You stay away from that stuff. But there are some things that are half-half. We go, well, what should we do? And for my dad, he was told he should not dance. That was the big thing. You laugh now, but... He was told Elvis Presley had the devil in his hips. Now, I conducted a funeral a couple of years ago where we had a recording of Elvis singing How Great Thou Art. And I'm thinking back to my dad telling me Elvis had the devil in his hips and now he's singing How Great Thou Art. Boom! I don't know what to do with this anymore. Should Christians dance? Should Christians do this? I remember I told my granny when I was about 18 years, 16 years old, I'm going to the football on a Sunday. Oh, my nana had never said a bad word to me in my life. And she was horrified. You don't do that, Mark. You don't do that. I said, well, we're going after church. It doesn't matter. You don't do it. And it was easy for me to write that off as, oh, don't be so legalistic. But in hindsight, as I look at what it did for her, that really hurt her. She had people in her church that said, TV is of the devil. So they wouldn't own a TV. But when the State of Origin was on, they'd go next door and watch their heathen neighbours' TV. <laughs> so let's, let's put one thing on the, on the plate, first of all. If you really believe it, then at least be consistent. Don't be hypocritical about it. And if you really believe it, okay, but acknowledge that whether you're saying just do it or don't do it, whatever the issue is, acknowledge that it is, a, it is an issue that perhaps Scripture is not entirely clear on. Therefore, it's not compulsory that we all believe the same as you. It is okay for us to not agree on everything. If we are ever in a church where everyone agrees on everything, you're not in a church, you're in a cult and you should get out. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, love. That's what St. Augustine said. In essentials, unity. Now, unfortunately, we can't all always agree on what's essential and what's not. Because we're human. Let's acknowledge that too. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in everything, love. And so Paul says to these people who are eating the meat, you're, you're right, eat it. But look at what it's doing to your brother. 
And I was trying to think of someone I knew who perhaps had been through something like this. And I thought of a young fellow I knew who had been to prison. And he got himself into a world of drugs and he just got himself completely messed up in life. Great young guy, just completely got right off on the wrong track. He did some time in prison. He did about three years in prison. And when he came out, he, uh, we hung out a bit. And the one thing that he kept saying is, I've got to stay away from the Gold Coast. Not that there's anything wrong with the coast, but for him, that was the place to stay away from. Because that's where the networks were where he would get back into drugs. He knew it was going to be a bad place for him, so just don't go there. And he said to me, oh, could you do me a favour? Could you check in with me from time to time and just say, are you staying away from the coast? And I would. Until the day I rang and said, how are you, mate? What are you up to? And he said, I'm in Southport. Three months later, he was arrested. There was something for him where he just needed to stay away from there. And for these young brothers and sisters in the faith in Corinth who had been so messed up in the demonic in the temple worship, they just needed to stay away from anything that had anything to do with that or if they went anywhere near it, they're going to get pulled back into that world. And they knew that. And here they had these older brothers and sisters saying, don't be silly, just go and eat the meat. Don't worry about it. I'll eat the meat. You can watch. Paul says, do you really think your liberty and your rights, your knowledge, are so important that it is worth the soul of your brother and sister? There are times in in life, and I think particularly for us men, I think, when I know in my own life, I am so desperate to be right it actually becomes about winning. And I disregard the soul of my brother or sister. We need to realise as Christians, this is a massive turn-off to people who are thinking about faith. There are times when we can be so right, we are horrible. I've been hanging out with a guy that I've gotten to know who's not a Christian guy. And I'm praying for him. I'm praying he's going to come to know Jesus. And I was talking to him about his experience in faith. And one of the things he said to me was, when I got to university, I was thinking faith. I was actually thinking that way. And there was this group at university, in fact, the group that I used to be a part of, and I used to go to their barbecues. I used to run the free barbecues, and I'd go to ask questions. And he was a, an engineering student. And he said, every time I went to see them, oh, well, all I wanted to know was this, how do I become a Christian? Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Confess your sins, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, you'll be saved. And all they wanted to do, Mark, was bash me over the head with, I had to believe, I had to believe in their version of creation. And they just wouldn't let up, Mark. They were, they were messaging me, they were on to me all the time, saying, You've got to believe what we believe on this. That's 20 odd years ago and he has not darkened the door of a church since. Now I'm not saying they're wrong about their view of creation. I actually don't know what their view was. But it's, thank you Judy, it ain't the point. They were so interested in being right 
they failed to consider the soul of the man. And I think if we're really honest, and this is, this is where we've got to search our own hearts, there are times in marriages and in relationships and in society where we know that we are in the right. And we are so set on standing on our rightness that we don't care how you accept my rightness, just acknowledge that I'm right and be done with it. And I've even had the words come out of my mouth, well, I was right in that situation. Well, what they did with it, I don't care. That is such a thoroughly unchristian attitude. And this week, as I've been praying through this passage, God has slayed me about it. Because I like to be right. Catherine, in fact, bought me a little plaque when we were first married, which said, once I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. I like being right. And I think let's take it a step further, friends. This might have happened in the marketplace in Corinth. Where it happens for Christians today is in the marketplace of social media. And I cringe when I see the stuff that Christians put on there. We worship a God of love and justice and grace and mercy and who says, broken people come to me. And then we post stuff that says, death to Muslims. If you post that, stop it. We don't want death to them. We want them to come to know Jesus. And I saw this the other day. A Christian brother posted on Facebook about shooting them. Freaking stop that if you're doing it. I don't know if people here are doing it, but you've got to stop that and love these people. Jesus didn't hate his enemies. He died for them. Oh, the times when I've done it too, where we post stuff and we go, oh, well, it's out there now and I've done my bit and I've said my piece and blah, 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 blah. Let's show people the grace of Jesus. But in the church... Paul takes it a step further. And this, this week, this, oh, verse 11. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, here it is, you're sinning against Christ himself. Did you get that? Even if we are right, if in our rightness we destroy the soul or hurt the soul of a brother or sister, we are actually sinning against Jesus himself. How important is the soul of Christian community to Jesus? It is that if we wound the soul of a brother or sister, even if we are right, we've sinned against Jesus himself. Now, Paul is not saying don't speak truth. He says elsewhere, speak the truth in love. He's not saying don't correct. If if Paul didn't think we should correct one another, then we wouldn't have most of the New Testament because that's what he spends most of the New Testament doing. But how we correct a brother or sister going wrong is not via email and not via Facebook, and not by uh, getting in their face. It's by coming to them and sitting down and saying, we need to talk. I'm concerned. The posture of reconciliation 
is so much more important to Jesus than our egos knowing that we are right. And if we really go to the heart of it, if we really go to the heart of it, when we want to put ourselves in a position of being right and being the one who is acknowledged as right, really what we're doing is letting our ego become more important than the cross of Christ. Because this person is someone for whom Jesus died. This is someone whom God loves. This is the one who has been brought into God's family by the blood of Jesus. God has said, this is my child, and therefore we should love them like that. And I tell you, sometimes people are hard, aren't they? Sometimes people are hard to love. Sometimes I am so hard to love. I know that. And yet Jesus died for me. And he died for you. And therefore, he says, you come together and worry less about being right than about your relationship. And it occurred to me that what happens is when we we get into these situations where we're going to make sure we're we're known as being right, is as one of my favourite lawyers said, his name is Paul David Tripp, the inner lawyer comes up who justifies us and and we, we justify ourselves and we have to make sure that we, we are on the right. We, we have to make sure that we've got our defences up. And I've got this great quote from David Trippett. If you ever want to read a great book about Christian life, and particularly ministry, it's called A Dangerous Calling by Paul David Trippett. He says, why do any of us activate our inner lawyer and rise to our own defence? Because we are convinced in our hearts that we are more righteous than how we are being portrayed in the moment of confrontation. My righteousness is in Jesus. Therefore, I don't need the inner lawyer to rise up and justify me. What this passage is calling us to do is rather than living with a posture of self-justification, is to live in a posture of repentance and to say, I'm sorry. There are no two more powerful words in the English language, other than I... uh, Well, I love you, three. There are no more powerful two words, I'm sorry. And not, I'm sorry, but I was. Or, I'm sorry, but you... I'm sorry. And it occurs to me as I read 1 Corinthians that 1 Corinthians is thoroughly missional. It is thoroughly... Paul saying, how are we going to tell the world about Jesus? How are we going to see people come to know the Lord? And time and time and time again, the way I think Paul sees it is by the way the world sees us relate with one another. That if we become the community of this, a community of genuine repentance, a community of openness, a community where we are concerned for the other person's soul more than my own rightness, that that becomes the kind of community that the world looks at and says, there is something different about these people, I'm going to be drawn there. Because what they will see is not a bunch of puffed out egos walking around, but a bunch of people saying, we're broken, we know that, we're vulnerable and we we need Jesus and so do you. Oh, that the church worldwide, if we could get this, if we could let our 
barriers down and let our egos down and stop being defined. And I know it for myself, stop being defined by the hurts of the past and say, I am broken and you're broken and let's sit down and know the healing of Jesus together. But you can't know healing until you know you're broken. You don't go to the doctor if you think you're fine. But when you know that you are broken, when you know that the inner lawyer keeps putting his head up and you go, well, it's time to deal with that, then yes, friends, church is the place to let it happen. And to have brothers and sisters come around and say, I know this person is wrong at the moment in what they're saying, but I'm going to walk the journey of wrongness with them until Jesus reveals the right to them. And one of my friend, one of my best friends in ministry, a guy named Paul, his wife, she had a messed up life before she became a Christian. She wasn't just doing drugs, she was selling the drugs. She was, she was into all sorts of stuff. She went to this church, she became a Christian. Her life was still a mess, but she had come to meet Jesus. And she realized after a while that all this other stuff that was going on in her life, the stuff that the people in the church and the pastor where she was, they weren't condemning her for it. And she realized that the stuff she was doing was wrong. It had to stop because Jesus had died for her and he'd redeemed her and it was time to live a redeemed life. She went to the pastor later on and said, how come when I was still doing all that stuff, why didn't you come and condemn me about it? You're my pastor. He said, friend, it's not my job to condemn. It's God's job to convict you. It's my job to walk the journey with you. That's the church we need to be, friends that we're going to walk with each other through the brokenness and the pain and the difficulty of relationships and to look at one another the way Paul says there, as one for whom Christ died. What is it for you that perhaps you are clinging to in being right? That's actually perhaps becoming your identity of being right that's less important than the cross of Christ. Because Paul says he'd rather be a vegetarian than let a, brother see, let a brother fall. Is there something for you that needs to be let go of so that you can be vulnerable and honestly, completely, the person Jesus is calling you to be? See, this passage is both challenge and invitation. The challenge is to be honest about the stuff that we've got to deal with. Perhaps there's people you've got to go and say sorry to. Perhaps there's stuff that's in your life that it's like, I've got to let this go. I've just got to, it's got to go. Jesus is calling me to something better. Because the flip side of the challenge is the invitation, which is that when you let these things define you, they actually enslave you. But when you hand them over, God calls us into this larger life of love. When we rise to the challenge, the invitation is this larger life of love. I believe that's what God is calling us to as a church. Forest Lake needs to know the name of Jesus. And the way they are going to know it is not by you butte stuff. The way they are going to hear it best is by the lives of God's people transformed more and more like Jesus. And in a world that says, justify yourself, stand on your rights and be right, 
the church can be the group of people that says, you know what, my love for you is more important than my rights. And so we pray that prayer. Make us a church where we look at people with the eyes of Jesus, where we serve people with the hands of Jesus, where we speak to people with the words of Jesus, and we listen to people with the heart of Jesus to show them that every person is important to God. Let's be that church. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus dying on a cross for us. Thank you that he bore our sin. And we are sorry that we, after Jesus did that for us, that we self-inflate so much to think that we are that important. Lord, give us the eyes of Jesus to see the people around us as people for whom Jesus died. And we pray that as we have our ego dealt with by your Holy Spirit, and as we increasingly see the people around us as people for whom Jesus died, and as we increasingly become that church that loves one another with a vulnerable and honest love, that we'll walk the journey with one another, that, Lord, you're going to draw people to yourself because of the blood of Jesus, that Jesus said he will be lifted up. And we remember the words of Christ when he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, the way you love one another. And so, Father, I pray for Forest Lake Baptist Church that though you have blessed us abundantly, Lord, with people and resources and a mission to tell people about you, great stuff, we confess that at the end of the day, none of that is going to count for a jot if we don't love one another with your love. Oh, Lord, would you make this church a church that truly, deeply, intensely loves one another? And by this, you will draw people to yourself. Oh, Father, please do this in us today by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.